Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, I have with me uh, Dr. Daniel Bellardo. Uh, Dr. Bellardo is... Um, a third-year cardiology fellow at Mainline Health in Philadelphia, and she's done her initial training at Temple University. She's also popularly known as the Reggie MD. Uh, she's got uh, an incredible following on Instagram and also on Twitter, and uh, she uh, has been uh, one of the uh, forthcoming voices, you know, when it comes to uh, vegetarianism, veganism, and cardiovascular disease, um, and. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, this podcast is a detour um, of what we've usually done with Parallax thus far, because uh, we've interviewed authors who've written articles for US Cardiology Review. Uh, but this is a detour for a reason, because the National Eater Vegetables Day is coming up uh, on June 17th. Uh, and I think by the time this podcast uh, gets broadcast, uh, it would either be on the National Eater Vegetables Day or just a week before that day. Uh, so um, it is my absolute honor and pleasure to have on the podcast, uh, Danielle Bellardo. Danielle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to your audience and talk to you today. So thank you for including me. No, it's our pleasure to have you. So um, let's begin the conversation by... Uh, just a little bit of a background as to when did vegetarianism or veganism, uh, you know, become a movement uh, in North America or in the United States. I know um, outside North America or outside the U.S., you know, for example, in uh, in South Asia or India, which is where I'm from uh, and which is where my family is, uh, the vast majority of population actually is uh, is vegetarian. So, uh, you know, just a little bit of insight into how did the vegetarian movement start in the U.S. It would be good for the audience. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's actually still quite small in the U.S. Um, it's actually only about 1% of the United States population, uh, you know, subscribes to being either vegetarian or vegan. But you're right. Worldwide, it's actually much more common. And um, just to orient your audience, um, from a medical standpoint, because now that our medical journals like Jack and Circulation and things like that are starting to publish a lot more nutrition research, kind of the definitions we use to define it. So, you know, vegetarian is someone that eats, um, uh, you know, a lot of plants, obviously, and abstains from eating meat or pork or chicken, but a vegetarian may still consume dairy. Um, a vegan is someone that uh, is really, veganism is just defined by what it um, eliminates, which means it eliminates all animal products. And 
What I subscribe to is called a whole food plant-based diet. And this is what our evidence and literature and research has supported being very healthy for cardiovascular health. A whole food plant-based diet, um, of course, eliminates all animal products. So that's no dairy, no meat, um, no chicken, uh, no fish or anything like that. But it really uh, emphasizes um, eating food as minimally processed as possible. So focusing on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, things like that. Um, so just really as natural, as minimally processed as possible. And as you mentioned, worldwide, um, this is actually a way that we've been able to see people eat and do very well. I don't know if you're familiar with the blue zones, but you know the blue zones are areas in the world where people have lived incredibly long, where longevity is just a part of their culture. And in the blue zones, what they found are these areas and these populations in Greece and in certain different regions, they actually consume very, very little dairy and very little animal products. And they consume a very high diet in fruits, vegetables, you know, and legumes and whole grains. So it is interesting how um, the United States is now starting slowly but surely to catch on to it. And uh, it's, it's still quite low, though, being that, as I mentioned, only about 1% of people kind of subscribe to saying that they're following more of a, a vegetarian or vegan diet. Uh, thank you for um, touching upon the definitions. You know, I think it's important to, um, you know, talk um, in, the, in the same uh, verbiage and in, uh, with, with the same understanding. Um, you, you brought up veganism and you brought up vegetarianism. I've come across, you know, a couple other terms, you know, like ovolacto vegetarian, which, you know, right. is, you know, consuming uh, eggs and dairy and, uh, and also the, the vast majority of diet is actually then vegetarian diet. Um, and then there's, uh, there is pescatarian, which is, you know, people would eat fish, uh, right. uh, and, uh, and vegetables, uh, uh, but that would be that would be the only form of meat that they would eat, right? Am, am I right? right? right. There's all sorts of different kind of variations uh, to it, and I think that um, overall, and what was reflected in our 2019 ACC guidelines, um, the prevention guidelines that were released this year, is that pretty much they're just encouraging us to advocate for our patients to focus on eliminating processed foods. I think everyone across the board, whether or not you're a meat eater or you're a vegetarian or vegan, whatever, everyone can agree that processed foods aren't healthy for us. And then they also advocate, uh, our guidelines advocate for, you know, increasing our fruit, vegetable, whole grain, and legume consumption, and then eliminating red meat, processed meats. And, um, they still advocate for lean meats like fish and things like that because the data hasn't been too negative for fish. So, so I do think that there's multiple different kind of categories people uh, fall into. Um, but I will say that what we found from a lot of the research and data that's out there on nutrition is that the more plant forward that our patients go and the more we can get people to drop processed food, I think the healthier uh, we've been able to see our patients become. Uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely right. So, you know, that's a good segue into my next question, which is, um, you know, let's talk a little bit more about the data, um, sure. because that's what drives, um, evidence and that's what drives science and guidelines. Um, where is the data come from? Like, um, I'm, I'm aware of a few randomized control trials, um, 
you know, the Pradimed obviously was published in the New England Journal, which looked at the Mediterranean diet. Right. Uh, and then there is uh, another trial which looked at vegetarian versus Mediterranean, uh, which I think was published in circulation maybe a couple years ago. Um, but, you know, obviously it, you are the, the right person uh, to, to talk to our audience about the data. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of great data out there. So with regards to randomized control trials, um, one of the ones that I love to cite the most uh, that was really great was Dean Ornish. Um, he published in The Lancet quite some time ago, a great randomized control trial where he randomized people to not only more of a plant-based diet, um, but he also had randomized them to things like mindfulness and yoga um, and different sort of interventions from a psychological perspective versus just traditional standard of care. And um, in these patients specifically, you know, he was able to find through, um, I think his first test, they actually, uh, I mean, his first paper, I believe that they actually recast the patients and they were able to see that they had some regression, maybe only about 5% of regression of their uh, coronary artery disease after about five years, whereas the control, uh, the standard care group um, just ended up having progression of their CAD. And actually through this, Dean Ornish is actually now, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Ornish Heart Reversal, Cardiac Reversal, Heart Cardiac Health Program is actually covered by Medicare. Um, and so if you have patients that need cardiac rehab, they can actually join Dr. Ornish's program wherever he has like a supervised center. So it is quite um, interesting. His was an RCT, but there's of course tons of epidemiological data. Um, one study that I love published in JAMA Internal Medicine 2016, um, uh, Dr. Song from Mass General uh, published a study called the Association of Animal and Plant Protein Intake with All Cause and Specific cause mortality. Um, the analysis looked at 130,000 people with over 3.5 million person years of follow-up. And essentially the question of the study was, well, what happens if we replace just 3% of your total calorie intake from animal protein with plant protein? And what they found was that replacing 3% calories of animal protein with a plant-based protein was associated with living longer. And of course, this is again, association. Um, and so you know, it is powerful data given the large size of the study. And, you know, they found replacing 3%. So for example, replacing 3% of your calories from processed red meat with a plant protein was associated with a 34% lower hazard ratio of mortality. Replacing 3% of your calories, uh, even for unprocessed red meat with the plant protein was associated with a 12% lower hazard ratio of mortality. So you know, and then again, just as I was mentioning how fish is definitely, I think the, um, uh, I think of all of the animal proteins, fish is been found in some studies to be beneficial, some to be neutral. So, you know, they even found here that even uh, replacing just 3% of calories from fish with plant protein was associated with a 6% lower hazard ratio of mortality. So that was obviously a large uh, epidemiological study, but it was a, it was pretty interesting because it covered a large group. And then one of my favorite studies that is also another population-based study, but many of your listeners probably know, um, it was published in Jack last year. Um, it's called Healthful and Unhealthful Plant-Based Diets and the Risk of Coronary Heart Disease in the U.S. Um, and Satija was the uh, primary author, and this is um, a group from Harvard. 
they looked at 200,000 people from Nurses Health Study, Nurses Health Study 2, and the health professional follow-up. This was about 4.8 million uh, person years of follow-up. And so the individuals were free of chronic disease at baseline. So the main question of the study um, essentially was, is a plant-based diet healthful? And is there any difference between a healthy plant-based diet and an unhealthy plant-based diet with regards to heart disease? So they created a plant-based diet index from a food frequency questionnaire data. And positive scores were assigned to plant foods and reverse scores were assigned to animal foods. And then they looked at it with uh, the eyes of a healthy plant-based diet index where healthy plant foods, this includes, as I mentioned, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, um, tea, coffee, they received positive scores. Less healthy plant foods were juices, sweetened beverages, refined grains, fried potatoes, and sweets. And animal foods also received reverse scores. So unhealthful plant-based index gave um, a way to evaluate this criteria as a whole. So if you look at their pooled multivariable analysis, they found that higher adherence to a healthy plant-based diet was independently inversely associated with coronary heart disease. So if you were eating an unhealthy plant-based diet or an, a diet filled with animal foods, the more animal foods you ate was positively associated with uh, coronary heart disease. And the reason why I love this study so very much is I think it differentiates between just someone abstaining from animal products and following what we know through the research to be a healthful plant-based diet. You know, one of the issues with the PURE study was that it looked at macronutrients. So if you're looking at a carbohydrate and associating, you know, mortality, carbohydrates are all very different, right? So someone that's eating an apple is different than someone that's eating a piece of white bread. And that's why this study from Satisha was so great because it does show us, you know, that you are more likely associated to have heart disease if you're eating an unhealthy plant-based diet, just because it's free of animal products doesn't mean it's healthy. So it also goes along with the idea that eating whole foods, plant-based foods that are truly in their natural form and less processed is what's going to be more beneficial with regards to heart health. Uh, so no, thank you for uh, explaining that to us in, in, in great length. Uh, is a paper that I cite frequently. And when I'm talking to patients, I frequently bring this paper up. Uh, it's a very neat study. It's very well done. Um, and, uh, you know, it talks about the healthful and the unhealthful uh, plant-based diet index. Um, my next question to you would be, how would you, how would you bring that into action? You know, it's a great paper, um, is a very important topic, but how do you talk to patients about it? And how do you, how do you make it actionable? Right. This is my favorite question because, um, I've had, uh, because of my social media following, I've had people, doctors in all different specialties from across the country that say, how do, as a cardiology fellow, have you been able to integrate this into practice? And, you know, as a cardiology fellow with zero funding for this, I actually created a plant-based preventive cardiology clinic, meaning I see I do office hours on Tuesday mornings with an attending who agreed to precept this, and I do preventive cardiology visits for patients who um, either have heart disease or have cardiovascular risk factors, regular cardiology visits, but patients that are interested in 
transitioning to a plant-based diet. And over the last year, I've had over 100 patients uh, go fully plant-based. And people always say to me, how do you do this? Like, do you have a nutritionist? Do you have a nurse practitioner, et cetera? I am a cardiology fellow. I do not have any other resources but myself. But what I've done is found there's a few ways that I've found to make this work. First and foremost is it just needs to be a conversation. And I know that we're all busy in medicine. I get it. Like, you know, attendings, you're so busy and the responsibilities on you and, and you're busy in the office and you have to see this person back to back to back. So it doesn't need to be a topic of conversation in every single patient visit, but it should be a conversation for at least some of them. And I think with someone that's not necessarily, you know, seeking you out. So I'm now spoiled in the fact that um, patients travel from different places to come see me and I'm a cardiology fellow. And so they all want to go plant-based. They're quite educated about it. But even if you're starting with a patient that is not even interested in nutrition, you can always just start the conversation. So what did you eat yesterday? And they'll start talking about what they ate yesterday. Well, I think one of the easy ways to integrate changing someone and modifying someone's diet is one assessing how ready they are to change. It's just like smoking. Someone may have no interest in changing and that may not be the day that you get them to eat more fruits or vegetables. Another thing to think of is that when you're talking to someone about nutrition, a patient with nutrition is that, you know, trying to modify just one thing. So one of the things I try to get my patients to consider giving up first is actually dairy. Um, dairy is so high in saturated fat and the nutritional value is so low that, you know, I know, and you know from research that we can get everything we need to live a healthful diet from plants, but dairy to me is just an excessive waste of calories and saturated fat. So I will try to, to work on that with my patients first. And so what I'll do is say, well, is there any way you think you could give up dairy, for example, if they're eating cheese or even just giving it up once a week or twice a week. And once they do that, they'll start to think, wow, that's actually not that hard. The other thing I try to do is encourage patients to either do a meatless Monday. So trying to give up all animal products, say one um, day a week, or another reasonable way is to ask your patients to give up an all animal products, even just one meal a day. And Giving them small areas to start with and small goals, I think, is actually very manageable. And I think all patients can actually imagine themselves giving up one thing or, or making one change. And, of course, a huge part of this is providing them with dietary references. So I've used technology to my advantage in order to educate my patients. So I have Epic as my EMR at Mainline Health. And so I have a dot phrase. And so, you know, one simple dot plant-based resources gives my patients a list of tons of resources for them to find recipes. Some of the favorites I like, I'm not affiliated with any of these organizations, but I happen to like Forks Over Knives and Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. They have some great recipes. So I provide my patients with resources, kind of an idea of how they can make a change, and then, of course, importantly, follow-up and, and kind of checking in with them and seeing how they're doing. And I think one of the most underrated factors that I've noticed, unbelievable patient behavior change, has been telling my patients success stories. So quick example, I've had just unbelievable success in, in transitioning my patients from a nutrition perspective and watching much of their chronic disease just disappear. But, 
you know, as I mentioned, as an outpatient, I'm now seeing patients that seek me out that want to go plant-based. And so now the only time I'm kind of seeing patients that aren't that way are when I'm on consult. So I was in the ICU, for example, like a couple months ago. And, um, you know, most of your patients are intubated, sedated, et cetera. And you're worried about the critical issues. You're not talking to them about nutrition, but I happened to have a patient that was extubated on BiPAP and his entire current situation was based on lifestyle. He was morbidly obese. He came in with, um, volume overload, HFPEF, had sleep apnea, hemoglobin, A1C of 13, uncontrolled hypertension. I mean, this was very lifestyle-related diseases. And these were all new diagnoses for him. And he was very young in his 40s. And so when I was walking around doing rounds as the cardiology film, I'm seeing the different patients. And when I stop by his room and start to talk to him, you know, he asked me, he started talking about the different medications he's going to go home on when he's discharged. We're talking about the pathophysiology of his diagnosis. And then one thing I said to him was, you know, I, there was a moment in my head where I said, okay, I'm in the ICU. I just got to keep it moving and go see the next patient. But I, I had this guilt that built up and I, I looked at him and I said, okay, I know this sounds crazy. We're sitting in an ICU right now and you're five up on, but I want you to know once we get this all straightened out, there's any way you want to see me in my office, um, we can work on changing some of the nutrition and lifestyle things and, and start to get rid of some of these medications and get you healthier. And he's like, how is that possible? He's like, no doctor has ever told me that before. And I was like, of course it's possible. And I shared with him some of my patient success stories um, and patients who have had, you know, severe hypertension, been incredibly overweight, um, you know, of course, diabetes, and they've been able to, you know, drop their hemoglobin A1C, et cetera. So this patient came and saw me in the office. Once he was discharged, he's lost 120 pounds. Um, he's went from five antihypertensives to one. His hemoglobin A1Cs dropped from how incredibly high it was. Now it's seven. You know, so he's been able to see these results. And I think that it was kind of a view. It made me realize that as doctors, maybe all of us aren't giving our patients enough credit. You know, a lot of times doctors, we are the barrier to providing patients with nutrition information because we will predetermine what patient we think will quote unquote listen to us. When in reality, a lot of patients actually are looking for guidance. So I think that that's kind of the best ways I've found to be effective in integrating nutrition into, into my cardiology work. No, that's, that's incredible. You know, I, this is a, a little bit off topic, but you know, this was a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Athena Pappas when I interviewed her for uh, the third episode, uh, which was on managing hypertension. And we talked about the DASH diet and um, which is dietary approaches to stop hypertension. I know there's a lot of uh, new literature on uh, vegetarian diet and uh, control of high blood pressure. Um, and yeah. you know, I, I, Asked her the same question is like how do you incorporate uh, you know nutrition education uh, in a fifteen or a twenty minute follow up clinic visit and you know as an and as, as an addition to that question you know I brought up the uh, the issue of uh, lack of nutrition training in cardiovascular disease fellowships uh, in this country right um, or for that matter across the world because you know we're not trained we don't have curriculum or curricula in fellowships where, uh, you know, we have uh, an elective which could be scheduled with a nutritionist or we, we, you know, 
not even our didactics, uh, you know, include, you know, nutrition science, which is incredibly important to know as a cardiologist. I mean, would you agree? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. There is, um, you know, the average cited in the U.S., the average uh, medical student gets about 19 hours of nutrition education over four years. Then in my internal medicine residency, there's no required nutrition education. And then as a cardiovascular disease fellow, I'm required to do 100 catheterizations and, you know, 100 TEEs. Um, but there's no nutrition requirement. And if anyone listening to this podcast, if you're a cardiologist, just think of your day, your patients that you see that day, and think of how many of them are coming to you with an issue that's based on lifestyle. And that could be not only helped with lifestyle modification, but prevented. So the fact that nutrition isn't a, a core part of our education um, as medical students, as residents, as fellows, is quite unfortunate given that the majority of the disease processes we're dealing with um, revolve around it. And so I think that it's actually slowly beginning to change. I know the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine has actually a nutrition class now where they actually talk about different studies and they actually cook different foods. So I think it's um, it's making its way into the curriculum. Uh, for cardiology fellowship, I don't think it has quite yet. Um, but it will be interesting to see if it starts to eventually take off. I think that a lot of physicians in our generation are really interested in prevention and are really interested in empowering our patients and giving them information and access to resources. Um, so I'm hoping it becomes more and more popular and more a part of our training. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, you know, I think some of the leading cardiovascular medicine journals have taken charge of this, you know, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, like, you know, our top tier journals like Jack and Circulation have published articles on plant-based nutrition and, and vegetarian um, vegetarianism or veganism and mm -hmm. its association with um, cardiovascular disease risk reduction and overall burden of cardiovascular disease. Uh, I think, um, you know, just, uh, you know, off off record when we were having a conversation about uh, ACC this uh, um, this year, the annual scientific session, you brought up um, at the Nutrition Day, which uh, ACC had organized. So, you know, maybe um, talk to us a little, a little bit about uh, the Nutrition Day and uh, how, yeah. that, how that came up and what was your involvement with, um, with the yeah. proceedings of that day. Absolutely. So, um, so I'm involved in the ACC nutrition work group um, with Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Andrew Freeman, um, Rob Osfeld, and uh, through it, you know, I've been able to meet many cardiologists from across the country that have, you know, we're, we range from omnivore to plant-based, et cetera, but everyone in the committee all, and everyone in the group and everyone that even all of the physicians that made up the guidelines for this year, everyone agrees that, you know, eating more plants and more of these whole foods are more healthful. And so that was really reflected in Dr. Williams uh, when he presented the new uh, guidelines. And Dr. Williams was the ACC president previously um, on that Monday of ACC. There was also a really, really fantastic um, on that Monday of ACC nutrition debate between Rob Ostfeld. Um, they had uh, the editor, I mean, the um, author of the PREDIMED study. I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, and uh, James O'Keefe. And even at the end of this debate, everyone who heard it kind of agreed. You know, all the cardiologists kind of came to the same conclusion. It was that 
we need to get rid of the processed foods and we need our patients to focus on eating more whole plant-based foods and eliminating the processed stuff that is very pervasive in the American standard American diet. Um, so I was so happy to see such an unbelievable excitement around nutrition and prevention at the ACC. There's so many incredible cardiologists in the ACC that are really pioneering and leading the way in this. And they're just heroes of mine because I do think prevention is so important and um, it's great to see it making its way into these conferences. So I hope that, you know, every year that starts to increase and, and happens in all different areas of cardiology. All right. I'm going to probably end the podcast by asking you a personal question. And that is, uh, how does a day, how does a food day or how does it, how does, um, a day in the life of Wedgie MD looks like, you know, when if, if we were to take a sneak peek into your kitchen. Yeah, sure. Um, how how does it how does how does Wedgie MD's kitchen look like, or how does the Wedgie MD's Wedgie MD's plate look like? Um, <laughs> okay, great question. So first and foremost, it depends on the day because I do also like the research from Walter Longo, intermittent fasting. That's a whole nother topic and a whole nother day. So I will say that I do sometimes do intermittent fasting, but. Um, with regards to a regular standard day, um, I will eat unprocessed rolled oats. Um, I'll usually add either a little bit of a plant milk, um, maybe almond milk, and then tons of fresh berries. This is if I have time in the morning. It takes two minutes, but sometimes I'm just running out the door. Um, and then, so I'll stick with either overnight oats or um, usually I'll end up doing that because it's easy. So just some rolled oats without any added sugar, and then I'll add fruit. I eat a ton of fruit. Um, for lunch, it just depends also on the day and what rotation I'm on. Um, if it's a day that I have time, I'm not in the cat lab or EP, etc. I will try to bring lunch with me and I usually will do some version of a salad. So I love kale, I love spinach, and I'll usually add things like quinoa, lentils, um, Brussels sprouts, peppers, tomatoes, avocado, um, any sort of vegetable that I've maybe roasted the night before. And a trick for your listeners, if anyone's, because uh, I also subscribe to a, I don't add any oil in my diet. So if you ever wonder how you can roast vegetables and keep them crispy, you do it on parchment paper. Um, and you don't have to add any olive oil, nothing, no added fat, and it's fantastic. So I usually do that. I'll throw that into my salads, bring those to work. Those are easy. And then I'm always eating fruit throughout the day. Um, I'm known for bringing strange fruit. Fruits. So I'm always eating either, you know, things that are out of the norm. I, I eat mango. I eat, um, of course, all different kinds of berries. I eat lychees. I eat uh, kiwis. I eat um, everything, every fruit you can imagine. And then for dinner, um, it just also, again, depends on the day. But generally, I'll focus on more sorts of vegetables. Um, I do love the... Um, bean legume based pastas that are hitting the market now. They're fantastic. I've actually just stopped eating regular pasta completely. And I eat either an edamame based pasta or a black bean based pasta. They have so much fiber and so much protein. It's unbelievable. Actually, one cup of a black bean pasta has more protein than a small filet mignon. So you know, as a vegan, of course, everyone asks me, where do you get your protein? And it's from plants. I mean, legumes have tons of protein. So, you know, my 
diet is very diverse and it's never boring. And there are tons and tons and tons of different uh, plants to try. So I advocate everyone give, you know, eating one meal a day of a plant-based sort of item a day and, you know, or sticking with one day of just all plants one day a week. It's easy to start with and easy to stick to. Oh, that's that's terrific. You know, great uh, tips and great insight into how one can modify diet um, and still uh, have a have a good day spent with food. Because um, you know, I, I know a lot of us just focus on um, what are we going to eat for li- for lunch or for dinner, and <laughs> uh, you know, it it forms a, a very important conversation. Uh, you know, both with our patients and you know, even with our friends and family. So, no, thank you for uh, detailing what your you know, day in the kitchen looks like. I think that's going to be very helpful for our listeners. Thank you. And thanks for having me. No, it's, it's been um, our, our great pleasure. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get you back um, on another podcast and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, sources of fat, vegetable fat versus animal fat, and then how to incorporate fat in diet. And, uh, you know, also talk about complex carbohydrates and, and whole grains. I think that's Absolutely. A, that's a different topic of discussion, but yeah, and then we got to do a fasting episode too. Some good, yeah. some interesting, controversial data out there on that. Yes, so, and I will probably you know bring in uh, the importance of breakfast because you know Jack published uh, yes. a recent study on the importance of breakfast and and its association with uh, with mortality. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah, well, no, thank there's you so uh, much for for having me. I truly appreciate it. It's such an honor, and I'm I'm so glad that you are opening up the conversation to for National Vegetable Day. You're opening up the conversation to diet, nutrition, and cardiovascular disease. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been our pleasure to have you on the podcast. And thank you for all the information and all the knowledge and all the energy. It's, uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to appreciate it a lot. Thanks again. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.